0: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's
1: quince.com slash upgrade. It was Wednesday, November 8, 1995. In London, Rupert Murdoch sat in his whopping office opposite Kerry Packer. Fresh from securing a landmark deal to jointly broadcast horse racing across Australia, the two business titans were in a conciliatory mood. Among the items on the agenda that afternoon was putting an end to the battle for control of Australian Rugby League, in which Packer and Murdoch stood opposed. It was not the first attempt at brokering compromise in the messy war, but at last it seemed sanity would prevail. After all, if Packer and Murdoch could put their differences aside, what barriers could possibly remain? This is the Great Compromise, the 24th chapter in the Rugby League Digest's in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy?
0: Mate, I'm over the moon to be back. How are you?
1: I'm good. I, I've kind of forgot my little intro line there. It's been a while. We've been working insanely hard on this through our little off season. So um, thanks to everyone for sticking with us through our break. We're both so pumped about this upcoming season. What can I say?
0: Well, I think one party's been working harder than the other. You've been locked <laughs> in a room like Howard Hughes. <laughs>
1: But, yeah, regardless, I say we because we are a team, and in correspondence with you over the last few days, I can feel the excitement. This is like our season kickoff. So I thought at the start we'd maybe explain what we've got in store uh, for this, our second season of the Super League War. Uh, And basically this season is going to cover the rugby league seasons of 1996 and 1997. Uh, And when you consider we had 23 chapters just on 1995, you can see that the action isn't as concentrated as it was in that single year. One of the criticisms we got from some circles was, when are they going to get to the Super League year? As if that was the heart of the drama. But in my mind, 1995 was such a monumental, explosive year that everything came after it kind of felt like a bit of the after story. So the pressure's really on to really nail the rest of this story.
0: Well, from reading the research that you've painstakingly compiled, I feel like it's it's even darker, the second series, because yeah. spirits are broken and there's a stalemate and all sorts of stuff. And, you know, it's, it's really, really dark in my view.
1: There's a lot of twists and turns before we get to the actual Super League year of 1997. If the first season was framed around the April Fool's Day raid and all the fallout of that, Season 1996 is bookended by two court cases. So those two court cases, the first case won by the ARL and then the appeal subsequently won by News Limited, they really form the the heart of the first half of our season and then through to 1997 and the split competitions. So because the action isn't so concentrated, the format will change slightly over the you know next however many episodes, you'll get more multi-part episodes, probably less total chapters, but about the same amount of content overall. And that'll take us through to our third season, which will look at the reunification of the game. Sort of. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of ground to cover. So we're going to get straight into it with the first chapter of season two. Uh, and this is really a table setting exercise. So I mentioned that Season 1996 revolved around these two court cases. This first chapter looks at the path to that first court case and all the opportunities to avoid it.
0: All of which were ignored.
1: Uh, Yeah, well, ignored is a bit strong, as you'll see. There were a lot of good intentions and a lot of earnest efforts to bring about compromise, but uh, a lot of things had to fall into place for that to be achieved, and as you'll see, they just didn't. So let's start with... This idea of the court. And basically, from the moment the loyalty agreements were struck in February 1995, the matter was always going to be settled in court. This is, of course, how the April Fool's Day raid was launched, with the ARL being served papers by News Limited challenging the loyalty agreements. You have to remember, of course, that the first shot fired during the April Fool's Day raid was. The serving of papers to the ARL by News Limited challenging the loyalty agreements. The ARL subsequently filed counterclaims and it all went down from there. So it's kind of funny how much duress there was on both sides. (laughs) Like you feel that the loyalty agreements and then the way News Limited signed their players like none of it was ever going to hold up in court.
0: Yeah, but that's my fondest memories of season one, just the the harebrained um, pressure tactic guy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we're almost at the point of bidding farewell to Mike Coleman's Super League book, which has steered us so brilliantly to this point. That book ends shortly after the first court case. Uh, so you won't hear me quoting from it too much more over the course of our series, but... One line I really liked in that talking about the upcoming court case was no matter the views of the players, the public, or the man on the gates at North Sydney Oval, those views would not decide a thing. In the end, it would be the law which decided whether Super League got off the ground or not. I really liked that because of the way that, especially from the ARL side, it was just all this people power and we're going to rise up and Aussies for the ARL and all the rest of it when really it was a bunch of lawyers from Sydney Grammar who were going to be deciding (laughs) what was going to happen.
0: I mean, he couldn't have summed it up better, could he? And we all owe Mr. Coleman a debt of gratitude for that
1: opus. Absolutely. But throughout 1995, there was this disbelief in the media and definitely from the public. I remember feeling this myself that surely it's not going to get that far, you know, let alone having two competitions playing. Surely it's not even going to make it to court. They're going to come together and something's going to be done. And that was even written in news articles saying that, you know, there was a Rugby League Week article saying that the ARL had received legal opinion that there's a strong element of bluff in the News Limited challenge to the loyalty agreements. As if there was it was just this strong showing to, you know, get the ARL to capitulate and come to an agreement.
0: Well, I don't think you should be blamed or anyone else for thinking that because in rugby league we're conditioned to think clubs are going to be bankrupt and on the eleventh hour they're saved every time and you know, that sort of thing. You just expected it to happen, didn't you?
1: Exactly. But it is kind of surprising that people thought that it wouldn't make it to court when so many big events and big changes in rugby league over the years have made their way to court and that's where they've been settled. Yeah. I read a great uh, journal article in the James Cook University Law Review by Chris Davies called Rugby League and the Law, which went through a history of court cases involving rugby league. So we can all name the big ones, you know, obviously the seminal Tutty case the draft in the early 90s, through to Super League itself. The big one after Super League that will be a big part of our last series is the South's case. But it just seems that so many times along the course of rugby league's history, something has ended up in the courts that has reshaped the game or or had an opportunity to reshape the game. I didn't really want to go too heavy on the seminal ones, the really important ones. When you think of, say, the Tuddy case, which is... Being covered elsewhere, uh, I'd recommend everyone once again check out The Professionals, which you can see at nrl.com, looking at the history of the Rugby League Players Association. That's a must-watch. These kind of cases, they've been covered in part elsewhere, but they would really take a lot of work for us to do justice to. But in Davey's article, he used a few examples which really stood out to me as being kind of interesting and worth a few minutes to talk about. The first couple I wanted to discuss was... The idea of defamation in rugby league, which Davies makes the case that in Australian legal terms is something that seems to only happen in rugby league, these defamation cases.
0: <laughs> what do they do? Go to your honor, I would submit that the plaintiff is in fact a gibberer.
1: <laughs> well, the one that really stood out to me was almost exactly. Along those lines, which was uh, the case of Boyd v. Mirror Newspapers. Uh, That is Les Boyd, of course. And he took a defamation action in regard to the headline, Boyd is fat, slow and predictable. (laughs) So he actually lost that case with the reason being that it was found to not be disparaging of Boyd.
0: I thought truth would have been the uh, defence. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. Like, I can understand him losing the case, but I would put it to you that that is disparaging. Well,
0: actually, it's not predictable because he, he could hit you with an elbow in the jaw at any time. So, like. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: and the other big defamation action was uh, the famous E.T. nude photo uh, taken in the dressing rooms during the 1990 kangaroo tour, which is one I definitely remember from childhood.
0: Yeah, I remember it being shocking at the time, but, I mean, it's been covered in, in our podcasts uh, regularly, but back to the old show, but the old trope is you have to be able to identify your doodle if you're suing for the <laughs> nude shot and he couldn't do it.
1: Uh, but he did win that case. And, and, again, I'm no legal expert, but it seems funny that it was defamation.
0: Yeah, it, I mean, uh, usually it's like print words, isn't
1: it? Yeah. One of the main thrusts of Davy's argument was that Rugby league is subject to more court cases than any other Australian sport, uh, and there was a bit of discussion about why that is. Uh, and, you know, you're the legal mind of this show. Do you have any opinions on this?
0: Well, I actually, drawing on my um, on my Newcastle sort of working class experience, really, is that it's the attitude of the people involved in it. Like, most of these cases are spite cases. I'm going to get that bastard type thing, you know what I mean? Like yeah. People that went back down want to prove a point. The lawyer's advice settling because it's going to cost too much money. Like, I don't care what it costs. I'm going to get this bastard.
1: It's funny you say that because a lot of the other examples cited by Davies were the ones of on-field incidents ending up in the court. You know, so it's just a continuation of of something that happened on field. You know, you've got the Stephen Kearney and Jared McCracken case, uh, the Gary Jack Ian Roberts one.
0: Well, my, uh, my mate and mentor, Chris Murphy, represented Jack in that one.
1: and Oh, really? He still despises Ian Roberts to this day for that, for yeah, that right.
0: <laughs> real dog act.
1: I was thinking about it as well. And I had the idea that one of the reasons might be that rugby league is one of the few sports whose right to exist has been called into question from the very start. And that's remained a relevant question, you know, 125 years later. Yeah. It's like this constant battle to prove that, you know, we have a right to exist. It seems to me that there'd be something in the DNA that lends itself to needing to prove things.
0: Absolutely. It's the underdog mentality. And as we know in the Rugby League Digest, in Rugby League, you can't (laughs) bully
1: the underdog. (laughs)
0: With the Super League War itself, like any other sport would have just capitulated under that sort of pressure from News Limited.
1: Yeah. And that's a good way to get to the rest of our episode because, of course, it was nominally the ARL in court against News Limited, but they wouldn't be there without the largesse of their corporate overlords who, you know, funded this war and and kept it going. And a lot of what we're going to see over the course of this episode is how those influences and tensions pushed forward and ultimately derailed compromise attempts. So what we're going to be looking at in this episode is the attempts made throughout 1995 to reach a compromise and to end it before it ended up in the courts it was funny in the aftermath of the first court case in the aftermath of the super league season itself there was a lot of introspection from all parties uh, a lot of regret and you know musing about the way things could have gone if things could have been different and a big part of that was that February meeting that we covered in the first season so there was a lot of ruminations you know Arthurson saying why couldn't they have just made a deal all the rest of it I'm sure the parties involved who put up half a billion dollars fighting this war, would have also had that same sense of regret. (laughs) So, Arthurson, for example, in the Rugby League week in 1996 said, the saddest part about it is this, the whole thing could have been fixed with a minimum of fuss and hundreds of million dollars less in costs. The bottom line would have been a deal that would have been to everybody's satisfaction. And, I mean, that sounds great and we should have done that. It's kind of ignoring the fact that in February, no party was willing to give any ground.
0: He's rewriting history there a bit, isn't
1: he? Yeah. And I mean, his comments in that respect are are lacking in introspection, given he basically told the clubs at that February meeting that he wasn't interested in the Super League proposal. But on the other hand, it also demonstrates the ARL's impotence. If a deal was to be done, it was at that stage going to be done between Packer and Murdoch. You know, it, it didn't really have anything to do with the ARL, even at that point. But at the same time, it's hard not to sympathize with the ARL given the terms that were offered were so in News Limited's favor, especially with what became the sticking point all year, the fact that the ARL didn't really have a seat at the table in terms of total control of the competition. They would be there to administer the competition, but it was all news financing and you know reaping the profits and ultimately controlling the competition. That was something that News wouldn't budge on, and it was something the ARL couldn't accept.
0: The whole thing about, you know, all we wanted to do is run the game, but they also wanted power as well, and they just keep glossing over that.
1: I do sympathise with the ARL in that respect. That's a really hard deal to accept, where you're basically handing over control of the game that your organisation had run in Australia for, you know, nine years at that point.
0: Well, they couldn't do it conscientiously, for their own constituents, could they? Like, they couldn't say that they're fighting for the clubs and they go, well, we're going to sign over and, you know, 80, you're going to yeah. die. But, I mean, yeah, exactly. in the same respect, they got the game into that position as well, so they couldn't really be demanding too much power, could they?
1: Yeah, exactly. And it comes down to something that I feel we may have been too flippant about in just, you know, claiming that, you know, like Optus, Cell News Limited, what does it matter? The ARL were at the behest of these money men. But the difference is that by going against News Limited and accepting the money from Optus, accepting the money from Packer, it was still their competition. And I think that is more than semantics, that ultimate question of ownership. I do think it's something that maybe we haven't grappled with. We haven't put enough gravity on that.
0: Uh, I think you're probably right. But, I mean, let me ask you this. How much is the fact that Murdoch is the face of News Limited, how much of that is disdain for him? You know, like- his brand, you know what I mean? Like if it was some other company. If it was Kerry Stokes, yeah. you know?
1: I mean, you say that, but, you know, the ARL were on the verge of a deal with News Limited in 1994. The Telegraph was long... You know, you called the Newcastle Herald a, a Knight's fanzine. You know, the Telegraph wasn't much better in terms of covering the New South Wales Rugby League prior to the Super League War. Yeah. So there was a longstanding connection and blokes like Peter Fralingos were, you know, really tight with the league. So. I think from the ARL's point of view, all the disdain for Murdoch came afterwards.
0: Interesting, yeah.
1: But for all that, what was offered by Super League at that point, Ken Cowley suggested that basically the traditional clubs would be retained with a Sydney comp that operated under Super League and you know the clubs would have a stake in the four Sydney franchises. That's probably the best way for it to have broken down. When you think about everything else that happened and all we went through.
0: I just wonder what would have happened fan-wise if that had come to pass, whether the four Sydney franchises would be have empty stadiums and all these minor league foundation clubs would have packed suburban terraces.
1: It's hard to know. And, and in my notes, I put the comparison of the BBL. You know, we're a decade down the track, but is anyone really passionate about any of the teams? I don't know if that's a, an accurate or a fair comparison.
0: I don't think it is because BBL is like a... World 7s or International 9s version of the game, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, the other one I put was the A-League, which I think there is something there. You had to move from these, you know, smaller, largely ethnically-based teams, you know, Marconi, Sydney Olympic, all the rest of it, into these new entities spread out across Australia that I think in 15 years or however it's been have developed a real, you know, genuine fan base and genuine passion.
0: Yeah, even that, I mean... Soccer fans are just like, you know, looking for something to be passionate about. You know, <laughs> they want to be singing together and punching each other and all the rest of it.
1: As much as I agree with you, I, I also think that it's kind of beside the point. The fact is that each team has 10,000 of those people. Yeah. So, with a sport that was already very popular in New South Wales and Queensland, what could we have done with a model similar? But I don't want to get too far into what could have happened. I just wanted to set the scene that the February meeting was viewed with a lot of regret. And, you know, the big thing we're going to come back to is what would have happened if Packer didn't come in and make a big show and say that he owned the rights, he ran rugby league in Australia, and, you know, everyone else could piss off, I'll sue the pants off you, etc.
0: Paper the walls with writs, I believe you said.
1: Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So that led to the famous front door comment from ken cowley to arthurson saying that if we were going to try this again we'll definitely come through the front door of course they went another way and april fool's day happened (laughs) after april fool's day it led to a genuine effort on the part of cowley and arthurson to come to an understanding and they had a lot of meetings over the next couple of months to try to work something out
0: all through this story we see the for all his faults, Arthurson at is just a rugby league man. It warms the heart.
1: It warms the heart, but it also shows you the limitations of having a rugby league man in charge, mm-hmm. you know. And, and, I mean, that's the way it always was. And credit to the ARL and Arthurson and Quayle in particular. They got the game to that point. But when the game was so popular that you had media titans battling over it, you've got to be up for the fight. And I think the limitations of having rugby league men in charge really hindered the arl at this point mm. and i mean that can be seen by cowley's comments regarding packer having the pay tv rights which he you know got for next to nothing and then on sold to optus which the arl had nothing to do with so this was cowley's quote in Roy master's book inside out ken asked me this morning what can i do about it and i said i've got no idea but i said i suppose the short answer is did you stamp the money in other words did the arl maintain control over tv rights you say nine have now assigned the license, pay-per-view rights, to Optus Vision. Did they ask you to do that? Was that put to the board of the ARL? He said no, and I said, pretty bloody sloppy. Accurate. But that was just one part of, by all reports, a fairly congenial and productive month of talks between Arthurson and Cowley, who were always positioned as the two Kens, the two old-school, friendly gentlemen who could you know, sit down despite their differences uh, and work towards a common goal. And it seemed that they were making real headway for genuine compromise. It was still the main issue that would ultimately derail all talks, the question of ownership of the game. Uh, Arthurson's second sticking point, which is really brutal and heartbreaking in light of everything that happened, was, as he said in May 1995, the second sticking point is that we have a legally binding contract with Channel 9, which we are obliged to and wish to (laughs) fulfil. Tragic. And the biggest part of the talks were what was going to happen to the Sydney clubs. You know, how were you gonna solve this problem that needed to be dealt with? And Arthurson at this point was actually agreeable with the idea that something could be done, but his big thing was time, that it couldn't just come together instantly, that, you know, you needed a kind of three year transition period or something similar. Which it sounds sensible, it sounds right and reasonable. But the issue is that the ARL were always seemingly Three years away from revolutionary change
0: (laughs) for a hundred years, yeah,
1: (laughs) yeah. (laughs) They bring in the 20 teams, but you know, that's only going to be for a a couple of years while the competition settles down, like whatever that means. You know, instead of making the hard choices, then it was, well, let's have this transition period. And then at this point, he's also offering this transition period of give us three years to sort it out, as if clubs would then take that three years to amalgamate themselves.
0: Well, it's funny because. Everything else they do is just a snap decision. You know, we're going to get a limited tackles, or whatever. You know what I mean? But when it comes, yeah, to, yeah. comes to clubs, it's the longest drawn out thing ever.
1: But then look at the way it ultimately broke down. You know, they were told that it was going to be, you know, sixteen teams, fourteen teams, and it's like, okay, shit, we better merge then. And then they, <laughs> it was done. They merged. <laughs> I kind of think that shotgun marriages seem to be the only way to get clubs into bed with each other. Yeah. When you look at the way it broke down in, you know, 98, 99. But contrasting the two Kens were the two Johns, Quayle and Rebo, who were uh, quite decidedly not old school gentlemanly in their approach to the media and and to dealing with conflict. And you can can see that especially from Rebo. He was quite intransigent throughout the whole process, saying we're not looking at compromise. We're full steam ahead. This Super League has the sizzle about it. Uh, and, you know, at various points being completely rebuffed by statements in the press from Ken Cowley. So there seemed to be a disconnect between the top of News Limited and Rebo at Super League at times.
0: It blows me away with Rebo that he had that sort of, the old phrase, uh, face like a smacked ass," you know, like the whole time, and his communication was like gruff and arrogant and whatever. It's like he's like one of those coaches that gets the job and loses the dressing room straight away. Like just having a... A more conciliatory tone even would have helped. You know?
1: <laughs> I just think he believed in Super League that much. Yeah, like a- he, he just he really believed in it, and maybe the way the public fallout throughout April that had to have affected him. And I think maybe he just got into this back against the wall kind of defensiveness. And similarly, Quayle, who despite being you know quite open to compromise, you know, many statements in the press saying, "Well, you know, the door's open." I'm standing by the phone. We're willing to talk. I feel like with Quail, there was maybe a bit too much water under the bridge. Uh, the way he puts it, you know, the Brisbans and cameras didn't like him because he was the one who delivered the nose. <laughs>
0: My door's always open so I can stare at you aggressively.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, but to his credit, when, you know, basically from April Fool's Day, it was always said that any compromise would involve Quail's head on a platter. He repeatedly said he was quite willing to make that sacrifice if it would bring about change, saying, look, if it's about me, I'll go. Let's just get this sorted.
0: A real man's man, a real rugby league man. I love that about him. But look at the language they're using, like it's life or death, you know. Yeah. head of yeah. a platter. <laughs> Take it
1: easy. But beyond the characters involved, the other thing was looking at what compromise would look like, like how rugby league would be reshaped if they did come to an agreement. And I think it illustrates why it would have ultimately been difficult to achieve. It was kind of too many half solutions that wouldn't end up pleasing anybody. The biggest one of which was what came to be known as the Singleton solution or the Singleton plan. Further evidence of John Singleton's uh, strange relationship with rugby league that we still haven't been able to put our finger exactly on what his interests were. Although I did realize that he had the advertising account for the ARL. Through 1995. So he did have uh, a vested interest, but he's just a funny character because he's known as like a, you know, an ARL man and someone who was sympathetic to them. You know, obviously his interest in Wes and his idea that uh, Super League would be a pathway to give Tommy Rodonicus a job for life. <laughs>
0: But he loves an Oxford scholar too, so he pulls sort of the uh, the benefits of it.
1: <laughs> and at the same time, he was very sympathetic to the characters of Super League. Uh, this quote on Rebo and Paul Morgan. John Rebo and Paul Morgan rate as two of the brightest guys in the game and they were treated like shit. Rebo will be seen by some as just a wrecker in all this, but he's a totally honest, decent bloke who was vastly underestimated and was treated very poorly. He was frozen out. And if, as part of his ARL man who could see the benefits of Super League. He came up with a solution that was kicking around the league. I'm pretty sure it would have been doing the rounds even before April Fool's, but basically it was to separate the league into tiers. He wasn't the first and by no means the last to suggest that idea. There's too many different things to go into, but basically it would be a top eight that involved five teams from the first tier and three teams from the second tier. And to get to that ranking in 1990 six there'd be like a six round challenge cup style tournament
0: sounds ridiculous i mean a they'll never rest until someone gets a super bowl style conference final happening in the rugby league it's almost like the hybrid game mentioned that much but none of these things work unless it's symmetrical you can't have five from one and three from the other
1: Well, if you think that's bad, like how do you feel about the next idea suggested? And basically like from here on in, the Singleton plan evolved to mean that any suggestion that came up was just tacked on to the Singleton plan. So it ended up wildly different to what he originally suggested. But once Cowley and News Limited came into the mix, it did become the idea of using these tiers to create two separate competitions. So having the Super League And then a Sydney competition, which one idea was to call this the JJ Gilton and Shield, uh, and that would just involve the traditional Sydney clubs. But it had a promotion and relegation element where the winner of the JJ Gilton and Shield would be promoted to the top tier, Super League. But who could be relegated? Only the lowest ranked of the four Sydney teams. (laughs) I mean...
0: Can we go back to Northern England uh, from the 1970s-style comp, please?
1: <laughs> like, have you heard anything more ridiculous? <laughs> a relegation system where only four of the ten teams are eligible for relegation?
0: Yeah. I mean, one thing about rugby league I love is if anyone's got an idea, like they'll get a chance to air it. At the papers will say, well, Trevor, you <laughs> almost just got an idea to revamp the scoring system, whatever. <laughs> Everyone gets hurt. <heard>. It's great. <laughs>
1: But beyond the obvious reasons why this would fail and be terrible, I feel if they had gone with something like that, and this is my opinion of promotion and relegation in general, I feel we may have got ourselves stuck in the same cycle of the English Super League where it's like, okay, promotion and relegation for these few years. And then, oh, wait, no, we want to go with a a licensing model now. So no more relegation. Oh, but wait, this isn't really working. So now we're going to do it again. And,
0: Oh god, yeah.
1: I just think a it's not the Australian sporting culture, and b it's not solving the right problem.
0: But think about like how paranoid rugby league people are in general when everything's totally legit. They still think they're being hard done by. If you were one of the four, and the other clubs were,
1: yeah,
0: uh, exempt. Yeah, it would have been a concrete cancer in the game.
1: <laughs> oh my god! Like what we experienced through Super League and beyond. Is nothing compared to what we would have got if, you know, like West fans were outraged because Adelaide won two games and they won three, but West were being relegated, you know, like nightmare.
0: Um, Imagine being a ref in that comp. I mean, (laughs) if it went that way, it would have been five years before we were having barter sponsorships.
1: Yeah. (laughs) But as you said, any idea gets discussed in rugby league, and the fact that these ideas were on the table and being talked about meant that in the public eye, there was a a real sense that something was going to be done. And the way it was reported in the media, late April, it was viewed as inevitable that there'd be a compromise, but that quickly changed. And again, neither party would give any ground of the real sticking point about ownership of the game. So what was inevitable in late April, by early May had become tenuous, unlikely by late May, and then By the end of June, it was basically off the table. So John Rebo came out and said, it's too far gone to talk compromise now. The battle's over. We've got our competition. They have theirs. Let's stop the sniping and get on with the business of running them.
0: He must have felt confident with the players they had that they were going to outlast them at that point in time.
1: See, to me, that is bluster. I think that's mainly bluster from Rebo because they must have been privately panicking that they hadn't got the teams and players that they thought they were going to get. You know, as we saw in our 10th chapter, the way they were scrambling to get those places filled, I think there's an element of just tough talking by Rebo in that instance.
0: Yeah, right. Well, if you can't get the clubs you want at 12 midnight in a seedy hotel, when can you get
1: <laughs> <laughs> But I think by that point, Rebo had been given the word from News Limited that, you know, get ready for the courts, get ready for dual competitions. Mm. Compromise isn't happening. And that became clear finally in September when Ken Cowley said, I don't think it's possible, unfortunately. I know that Kerry Packer and myself are both at one. We both care about the game. All along, we've been keen that something would happen, but it seems to be out of our control now. I think with that quote, you can see a subtle hint about the third party, which is Optus, of course, which had curiously taken a back seat in the press. Despite the fact that they were the only party really able to bring about compromise on the ARL side, they were very much the deciding factor. And over the back half of this episode, we'll increasingly see their influence and their role in, you know, stopping compromise.
0: It just makes me sick, this whole Optus thing. It really does.
1: Yeah, well, just make sure you're sitting down for the back half of the episode because <laughs> <laughs> it is infuriating. <laughs> But with that, come September, semi-final time, compromise was looking unlikely. And because of that, the two camps were on a war footing. So in Super League's eyes, what a perfect time to launch their competition on the eve of ARL semi-finals. So they launched their comp with a gala event at the Museum of Contemporary Art in early September 1995.
0: They were trying to get away from rugby league traditionalists, weren't they?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Ken Cowley's statement on why the MCA was chosen was The Museum of Contemporary Art represents the very best of innovation and imagination and Sydney Cove was the place where modern Australia was born. Today we celebrate not only innovation and sporting imagination but we'll be envied by future generations as being privileged at being present at the birth of Super League.
0: <laughs> it's a very nice spot there actually but I mean it's not exactly rugby league.
1: To me, and this is disparaging of people like Ken Cowley, who I don't think is a dumb guy. But to me, it's a classic like dumb guy thing to do to show that you're smart and you're highbrow. Now, you know, you can think about the ARL like having like orchestras and Yanni for their season launches in the past. It's you know this telegraphed attempt to class up the game.
0: <laughs> but then they couldn't have it at like the bistro at the Captain Cooker Hotel. Either, you <laughs> know, <so. laughs> hiding to nothing
1: it was a early monday morning event so i think it would have been some kind of you know buffet or canape kind of thing so how many times do you think you would have heard the words how good's the spread <laughs> the event was to culminate in the revealing of the super league logo which was going to be a helicopter bringing it down to circular key but that was um, deemed too dangerous so they actually filmed parachutists coming down to land, which they did prior and played at the season launch.
0: Still, it's a great logo. Uh,
1: great, uh, yeah, the logo's okay. The, the lo- yeah, I'll pay that. A bit Mickey Mouse doing the pre-filmed parachute drop of it, I think, maybe.
0: Well, do you want a bloke dying on the launch, or a tourist <laughs> getting hit in the head by a Super League sign? Did we not learn anything from, uh, well, that was before that, the Optus Vision? <laughs>
1: <laughs> but uh, launching the season... At this time. I can understand the all's fair in love and war element of it, but like it's a dick move to me. It really is.
0: I think the Rebel League people would have seen it that way too. It would have felt off.
1: Yeah, I think it was counterproductive, and it's just bad PR. It doesn't make Super League look good. Petty. Yeah, petty, and everyone could see it from what it is. One of the things I liked about it, though, was at the same time they had the launch, they revealed the proposed draw for 1996. And that led to outcries about the unfairness of it from certain teams. One report in the Rugby League week said that Auckland have been stiffed by a bizarre Super League draw. It's, it's like <laughs> early indication that for all of the circus element to it and the vision and all the rest of it, it was going to be just a Rugby League competition. <laughs>
0: Before it even exists, the complaining of <laughs> bias. Beautiful.
1: But that was basically where the two camps stood at the end of season 1995. So the court case kicked off just after the grand final and all the filthy four case and all the little sideshow cases that were going on. We, of course, had the World Cup before the judgment came down in February of 1996. Before we got to that, however, there was probably the most significant efforts at compromise and the one that really could have stopped the war right then and there. And that is what I referenced in the our opening monologue, which was the meeting on November 8 between Kerry Packer and Rupert Murdoch in London. And this coming together of the two had been telegraphed uh, from some point before that in the wake of the World Rugby Corporation collapsing, which if you haven't, go back and listen to our The World in Union chapter, and the Sky Racing deal done between Packer and Murdoch to basically run racing on TV in Australia. So with those sorted out, it was... Just reported and viewed in the public that, oh, okay, well, they've got together on these things, so surely rugby league is next on the agenda and we'll just solve it all.
0: I was fascinated by both these blokes as a young fella. read all the books about them, but just the thought of these two Bond villains, just it's just like a little personal bet for them to see who yeah, wins, yeah. you know? It just yeah. sucks.
1: And I think you've probably hit the nail on the head there with just how much of a compelling and easy narrative it was to frame it in those terms. And so at this point in time, it was very much considered a Murdoch versus Packer battle in the public eye. And I feel this is something the rugby league media really should have done a better job of correcting. It's easy with hindsight, but I found myself like really disappointed with the media, like serious journalists who just made out that it was this two man battle for control and, you know, Optus or pay TV had nothing to do with it really. But
0: it sells more papers when it's Packer Murdoch instead of yeah. Murdoch, Jeff Cousins.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. But regardless, this meeting in November between the two did have a chance to really get things going. And, of course, ending the Super League War was just one item on the agenda. The other big part of it was a deal between Channel 9 and Fox to get, you know, Fox movies and TV shows on Channel 9. So that was, like, probably even a bigger deal Than Super League was sorting that out,
0: (laughs) but I mean, yet again, it's all about pay TV, mate.
1: Yeah, it's so funny that that deal, as we'll see, the deal didn't go through at that time. Uh, It was eventually settled, you know, in late '96 or early '97. But the deal was basically completely redundant by the time it was all settled. And I think there's an irony there in the fact that the whole rugby league affair was over pay TV rights, and it was pay TV that effectively killed the, you know, the Sunday night premiere movie tradition which was seen as this big carrot when Kerry Packer was, you know, <laughs> trying to do a deal with Rupert Murdoch to get the rights.
0: It's just annoying that they're bartering over City Slickers too and then <laughs> and this little side bet on <laughs> the game we love. You know?
1: Yeah, exactly. So I won't go too far into, you know, the terms of the deal and fifteen percent of this and five percent of this. That's not really relevant to our story. All we need to know is that murdoch and packer reached a deal part of that was to try to settle the rugby league war to try to get that done so following this meeting a compromise agreement was drawn up by kerry packer's right hand man brian powers and he met with the two kens in sydney to discuss a solution this took place uh, at the astra apartments on macquarie street but basically this was step two of the road to compromise so Step one was an agreement between Packer and Murdoch. Step two was to get the ARL and News into some kind of agreement about what compromise could look like. And then we'll get to step three soon. But so basically this compromise once again came back to control of the game. All the agreements that were drawn up, so they proposed that two-tiered agreement. They proposed a relegation promotion system News were adamant that no Super League teams could be relegated. So now you've got the even more ridiculous situation of only ARL teams being eligible for relegation. A big sticking point was the existence of the Hunter Mariners and Adelaide Rams. So Super League wouldn't give any ground on the place of those two teams in the competition.
0: What would they want to keep the Mariners around for?
1: This is, to me, the most damning argument against News Limited being genuine about compromise, not budging on these ridiculous measures. They knew that the ARL weren't going to accept that. Why would the ARL agree that only their clubs could be relegated? Why would they agree to two teams in Newcastle?
0: So that's what I mean. It couldn't have been all bluster because otherwise they would have had some sort of genuine attempt. Yeah. Crazy. You know what we haven't spoken about is that mm-hmm. um, they were planning on running this without any gambling money, poker machine money. Whereas every club to date is surviving just on that and still going broke. So they were expecting such profits from this pay TV that they didn't need any.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, that was all the talk from the Super League pitch was that, you know, oh, we'll own the clubs, but you can buy your stake back. And with the way our profits are going to work, you'll be able to buy it back within four years. (laughs) So as the talks kept going on, it was even put to the clubs and The way it was reported, there was an idea that clubs would be willing to, you know, amalgamate or various solutions were offered. One of those was that the Super League Sydney clubs would be retained and the ARL clubs would buy minority stakes in those clubs. So
0: (laughs) Pyramid scheme style vibe to that. (laughs) You just buy your stake back in four years. (laughs) Bizarre.
1: And these reports of clubs being willing to amalgamate themselves and come to an arrangement was offset by comments such as this one by an ARL executive. Has any airline ever offered a half share to a hijacker? That's exactly what's happening here.
0: (laughs) That's the quote of the series.
1: (laughs) But so I think it would have been really hard to get the clubs to come up with an arrangement that worked. But the other thing that I think is interesting about this is at this point the ARL were publicly acknowledging the need to do something about Sydney. So, Arthurson said that cutting the number of teams was a problem we have to get around.
0: If you're one of those clubs and he's preaching about, you know, we're going to fight him on the beaches like Churchill and then suddenly he comes out and says that, you'd just be shattered.
1: Well, that's the thing. I feel like the ARL kind of blew with the wind on amalgamations Mm. At various points saying, yep, we know we're going to rationalize. We're going to give the new comp time to settle in. Then we're going to get to work. Or we know this is a problem we need to fix. And then at other times being like, this is our tradition. Super League are coming in, but we've got to be loyal to our clubs.
0: It's like the origin jersey thing. We're going to be traditional, but here's our newfangled jerseys. Yeah, yeah. But being one of those like low clubs like a West Magpies and being described as a problem that needs fixing. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> Sorry. So yeah, it was definitely expedient for the ARL at certain points in the war to be conciliatory and talk about rationalization and at other points be, you know, steadfast in tradition and, and the need to protect their clubs. But I mean, all those statements are in the press, all these contradictory statements. And how, as a club boss, could you have any faith in your long-term future with that? Well,
0: the only sensible guy in the whole thing so far has been George Piggins. I'll be as loyal to you as uh, you are to me.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. But basically, what happened was the talks stalled as they always did because of these tough terms and the fact that the compromise agreement News Limited were offering in November was basically unchanged from what they pitched in February. <laughs> yeah. But as all this was going on, On the 24th of November, it was reported that Channel 9 had secured a deal for the free-to-wear rights of Super League. And This was viewed as treachery by the ARL. They couldn't believe that Packer had done it. You know, Arthurson in particular was gutted by it. You know, you could see in his book how personally affected by it he was and how much he considered it a betrayal.
0: Well, it's no other way to describe it, but it goes back to your point about rugby league, man, and handshakes and everything. When you're dealing with these sharks, I mean, yeah, and I mean, grandmother for five cents,
1: exactly. And you have to think that the talks in November were about Packer getting the best deal for himself. That was always going to involve Channel Nine, like his one true love.
0: Mm. But can we just uh, acknowledge now this Packer the knockabout? narrative can we just forget that Oh, oh. now on because
1: i just cannot believe how that perception managed to last for so long like even when he was being talked about as a prick and a snake and all the rest of it it was always this you know like oh he loves a punt he loves his cricket etc it's like <laughs> he's old money he grew up playing polo all the rest of it, like, <laughs> like you couldn't get any further removed from the common man than Kerry Packer.
0: Which goes to show how much people hate nerds, because like most <laughs> businessmen are nerds, <laughs> like Rupert Murdoch, because so, he wasn't a total nerd. and was like, what a legend.
1: And I mean, even Ken Arthurson, like in his book, after all of this had happened, you know, I'll spoil that Kerry Packer does a second deal with <laughs> Rupert Murdoch in 1997 that also broke Arthursen's heart. After all of this. Arthurson writes, I would venture to say that Rupert Murdoch has never seen a game of rugby league. I certainly haven't bumped into him on the hill lately, having a pie and a beer. At least Packer is a sporting bloke. Like, like, this bloke ripped your heart out twice. (laughs) (laughs) And you're like, oh, he's a sporting bloke at least. (laughs) Love the punter. But for all the ARL's blindsiding and talk of treachery when this deal was announced, In the press, it was still reported as just being part of the process, something that was going to hasten the peace. Even John Rebo was quoted as being amenable now. He said, time's running out for both parties. So if there's going to be a compromise, I believe it will be by the end of next week. So we were almost moving into fait accompli terms in the press once this deal was announced. Yeah. But at this point, we're going to really introduce Optus in a serious way and- it's kind of like as all of this was playing out publicly as deals were being considered as you know statements were flying around in the press between Packer and Murdoch the final boss was laying in wait and all the public comments we got from Jeff Cousins who was the boss of Optus Vision this should have been an indication that it was going to take a lot of work to get an agreement over the line so he was regularly quoted in the press throughout all these talks as saying well we haven't agreed to anything and we have no intention of giving up our rights to the Australian Rugby League. But we should take just a moment to set up the state of play in Australian pay TV at that time, with Optus considered, you know, being somewhat ahead of the game at that point.
0: That's hilarious to me. I always thought of them as like the undersized runt, you know, the pay TV litter.
1: But I wonder how much of that is is shaped by the way it all played out. Like, you know, History only remembers the winners, you know, so we think of Optus as being beaten, but, you know, at this point in time, they were doing well. But what everyone knew was that there could only be one ultimate victor. But the other big selling point of Optus Vision was the fact that, in the public eye at least, they had Packer in their corner, so it was considered, you know, Packer's operation. The reality was he owned a 5% stake, which... There were these deals in place that it was going to go up to 15 and then I think even 30% at one stage. But he ultimately chose not to exercise that.
0: When I read that in your notes, I nearly fell off my chair. And not just because of obesity, because of <laughs> all this bullshit, over 5% stake in Optus Vision. Yeah. It's incredible.
1: And I think what it ultimately shows is that his heart was never in the fight. I think even the fact that he had that 5%, I view it in the same light as that, February dick swing at the meeting. He wanted to come in and mark his territory, show everyone that he still had a seat at the table. He was still the guy you had to get through with anything to do with Australian business. But it wasn't something that he was actually all that invested in.
0: Which is weird because he did like rugby league.
1: I mean, he liked rugby league, but had a shameful attitude to showing it on his own network. (laughs) Yeah. But so I think the Packer part of it, I think that really did in some ways sway public perception yeah and i think it was viewed from optus even as an important part of their success his political connections and all the rest of it but regardless with jeff cousins they had someone who was going to match kerry packer you know he wouldn't back down to him in fact he's reported as having a go at kerry packer and telling him of the pay tv rights they're not yours they're mine so you know you don't have a say
0: Which any good executive would have to do, right?
1: Yeah. At this point, I'm going to defend Optus because it's clearly true that any deal between Packer and Murdoch was going to screw them if they just bowed down and went along with it. You know, they had their interests to protect. And so at this point, we're going to talk about Jeff Cousins a bit more. You heard us discuss him during the Phillip Street chapter in particular and assorted other points along the way. So basically, April one was essentially his first day in the job uh, as chief executive <laughs> of Optus Vision.
0: It's still hilarious.
1: <laughs> so he came in and instantly committed Optus to the fight. You know, threw in a bunch of money that I think the total that Optus put in in the end washed out to you know over two hundred million, something like that. It was a lot of money, and because of that, he's viewed by people in the ARL as being this hero, this saviour. Phil Gould described him as the gun that turned out to be a cannon. Arthurson said, if you're in the trenches at Gallipoli, you could have no one better <laughs> alongside you than Jeff Cousins.
0: <laughs> well, he's a great dodger character because he's best mate, Kerry Parker, in the back twice.
1: <laughs> but the way he's talked about on the ARL side uh, and the Optus Vision side, it just infuriates me. This was also in uh, Mike Coleman's book. This is Tom Barnett, who was another Optus Vision executive. He believed in what he was doing. He believed sport must be run by the people for the people, not by a corporation. I know it sounds like just another pitch from an old ad man, but he honestly believed it. He said, this is wrong. This can't happen. And he wasn't prepared to walk away. Not ever. He didn't flinch once.
0: He's a regular Leon Trotsky, isn't he?
1: (laughs) (laughs) And so if News Limited weren't giving any ground on the way they wanted the competition run, Jeff Cousins was giving up no ground at all in terms of compromise and doing any deal that was going to affect Optus Vision's bottom line,
0: in a hypothetical territory again. But I mean, if they just gave them something in return, just to bow out, you know, in the compromise, News Limited and Packer gave Optus Vision some sort of content or something. Here you go.
1: Yeah, yeah, like it'd have to be some buyout, or yeah, it would have to be something significant. But they didn't get to the stage of offering that, and. It's hard to see what agreement Cousins would have agreed to, especially given how much money they'd already poured into the fight. I mean, I guess you say don't pour good money after bad, but all his public statements were just resolute, you know, uh, saying that we want to see the court case continue. We want to see the ARL win it, and we don't plan to make any accommodations with News Limited in the interim. No one can make a deal unless we agree. Murdoch came along because he wanted those TV rights. The only way it can be resolved if there's negotiation with us on those rights. So he's constantly in the press with these statements. I think behind the scenes even more, uh, he would have been pressing the point that they weren't going to be doing a deal.
0: Well, let me ask you this. Why are they carrying on with all these discussions if they're just excluding him?
1: That is a very good question. I mean, nominally... This was the third step in that process that I was talking about. So step one Mm. was Packer and Murdoch coming to agreement. Step two was the ARL and News Limited coming to an agreement. But step three was the one that had to happen. And I mean, as it turned out, they didn't even get step two sorted. But it was all pointless. We went through all of this, this month-long battle, this, you know, what were the two Kens even talking to each other about? if ultimately it was all going to come down to Optus' vision.
0: Yeah, it's odd, isn't it? I suppose I was probably thinking, start with dialogue now, it's going to work itself out.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I think it was, if we put everything into place, if we have a competition that, you know, let's just say they did go with that, the two tiers, the Gilton and Shield and the Super League on the top. I mean, maybe you could have come to an arrangement where Optus had the Gilton and Shield and Foxtel had the Super League. Or maybe even a shared agreement where, you know, both networks had, you know, Super League games shown. I don't know. Maybe they could have come up with an agreement that was acceptable to Optus Vision. But it seems like you start with that. Yeah. But so regardless, a deal couldn't be done. And I don't blame Jeff Cousins for standing his ground. Me either. I, c- I consider him one of the true villains of the saga because of the way his actions prevented peace. But I don't blame him for doing the best for Optus Vision. What I don't like well, is f- framing it as this moral crusade.
0: Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, Packer had the rights given to him for some unknown reason and then onsold them. If he did not onsell them, it would have been, a, you know, been able to be worked out, you know. So yet again, he's involved in the game's destruction.
1: Yeah, exactly. But I mean, I believe Jeff Cousins should be equally as reviled as Packer and Murdoch.
0: Yeah, well, I, I don't because, I mean,. He's just defending his company's position. I think he's a step below both of them. Just the fact that he's the sticking point. That
1: yeah, yeah. I, I guess yeah. The, the big thing for me, is it's always his finger jamming the works. Anytime yeah. something could have been done, but I accept that in some ways this is unfair. Especially at this point, like his resistance was moot because the ARL never found an acceptable agreement with News Limited. So all the talks that were being going on to then present something to Optus Vision. They never got to that stage. But that goes to this three-step plan where step two was completely unnecessary. If they'd just done an agreement between Packer and Murdoch and then those two bypassing the ARL completely, going straight to Optus Vision and doing a deal, well, the ARL would have no choice but to accept what they were offered. So that's another way it could have broken.
0: Just a sad state of affairs. That's what it is.
1: But regardless of that, the talks between the two Kens finally broke down on the 29th of November with Ken Arthurson writing to Ken Cowley and saying, I don't feel we've moved to any significant extent from the position which you presented to me two weeks ago. Uh, So that was basically it. They never got anywhere near where each party wanted to be.
0: Well, the options were like the ball gag from um, Pulp Fiction or or nothing. (laughs) It's like not really fair negotiations from Cowley. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Well, in Cowley's response to Arthurson, he said this, The responsibility for negotiating a settlement rests with us. This is a responsibility which I've accepted and which I've acknowledged in our discussions. News and Channel 9 have joined together to facilitate the reconciliation, and each is willing to make significant concessions as has been discussed. In recognition of those concessions, the ARL must now also put the interests of the game above personal and corporate interests to position itself on the side of compromise. Which is another subtle dig at Optus, I think, saying that Mm. news and Channel 9 have come together. What
0: about the fact that, like, Murdoch owned a percentage of Channel 7 as well? Yeah. So much murkiness.
1: I know. And then there's the Fairfax part of it all where, like, you know, both of them were trying to get stakes and sell the... I'm really interested in the business part of it all, but I feel, like, really unqualified to discuss it at any length. But I think if we're having a go at all the parties involved, I think it's high time that Ken Cowley comes under the microscope as well. Because if Kerry Packer is falsely viewed as the knockabout, every article ever written about Ken Cowley positions him as, you know, old school, soul of the earth, as good as his word, all the rest of it. And it's like he is as self-interested as every other party involved. You know, he's all like, I said to Rupert, we can't stuff up this game in Australia. So like, you know, thanks, mate.
0: At least he's got the self-made part of it. It wasn't old money, in you
1: know? No, yeah. So, I mean, even that part of it, it's like there's all these stories of him. You know, he grew up in a tent on the George's River, educated at Bankstown High. But, I mean, like, <laughs> he's a multimillionaire who at one point in 1995, there was a potential deal for him to buy the Australian arm of News Limited outright. <laughs> you know, after the war, he resigned from News Limited to take on chairmanship and ownership of R.M. Williams just as a retirement job. Yeah. So what was best for News Limited is what was best for Ken Cowley, and that's what he was always going to do.
0: Again, though, you've got to fight for your company, it's uh, otherwise you're as traitorous as the rest of them. Yeah,
1: yeah, true.
0: Same as Cousins.
1: So, yeah, no, you, I've come around a bit to your way of thinking on Cousins. Maybe he's a lesser tier of villain than Packer and Murdoch. But back to Packer and Murdoch, The failure to reach compromise and to get Optus to come to an agreement led to the collapse of the deal that they had broken uh, in early November. So that meant the collapse of the Fox movies and TV and all the rest of it. That ended up in the courts uh, and led to the famous quote by Rupert Murdoch calling Kerry Packer a -er. Welsher. That
0: term is, you know... Like calling a criminal a dog, you know, it's like the worst term you could have down the pub. He, he welched on his bet for the <laughs> for the carton that we had you know, on the weekend. It's like yeah. amongst those two animals, like what does that mean?
1: Exactly. Like I mean, in Packer's defence, I don't think he did welsh on the deal. He did his part to you know bring the compromise to fruition. It, it couldn't work out, so I don't think he's a welcher in this deal. But like, I'm sure he's welched on a billion other deals. In the, you know, 40 <laughs> years in business preceding that. Like, he absolutely would have Welshed if it was advantageous to him.
0: Oh, that's just, like, hilarious. <laughs> Two multi-billionaires.
1: <laughs> and that quote also, like, highlighted Arko's continued naivety in his book, saying, The first deal fell through in the wake of squabbling between the billionaires Packer and Murdoch, during which Murdoch called Packer a Welsher. A year or so later, he was back to being an honourable, upright business gentleman in Murdoch's eyes, referring to the fact that they came back together and did a deal. It's like, no, neither of these men thinks in those terms at all of each other or of anyone else.
0: I think naivety is the uh, correct word there.
1: I mean, even in the face of everything he'd been through, like, on the one hand, it's endearing, but on the other, it's an indictable offence, you know? Like, he's a rugby league man to his core, and that's to be commended, but, like... Surely a man in his position in the game should be expected to have some nausea
0: Yeah, I mean, especially when you saw World Series cricket like
1: yeah, four yeah. years earlier. <laughs> but Arthurson wasn't alone in this from the ARL side. So uh, in 1996 in an SMH article, a senior ARL official is reported defending Packer, saying, Murdoch's man, uh, referring to Ken Cowley, Made the peace plan unacceptable, rather than Packer Welsh on a deal, and it's like, well, yeah, that's true, but like Packer just fucked you over. Why are you going out of your way to defend him against claims of being a Welsher? He had
0: some sort of magnetism where people wanted to be on his good side.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I guess it was still in the ARL's interest to be on Packer's good side, but it's just like two months before that, the ARL were accusing Packer of treachery, and now they're going out of the way. To like, who cares if he's a Welsher? Why does he need to be defended on that?
0: Very much Stockholm syndrome to me. <laughs> and then during
1: 1996, Packers offsider Graham Richardson got back involved, holding talks with Kevin Neal at Canberra, um, various figures at Brisbane about a possible compromise. These talks were done with no consultation with or knowledge by the ARL. So, this was completely, you know, this guy who was there in the trenches and, you know, he was up for the fight in 1995, went out to talk to Super League clubs in 1996. And I dare say he wasn't doing that off his own bat. And if it wasn't the ARL, then I think it's fair to say that Kerry Packer had something to do with that as well.
0: He really makes my skin crawl, Graham. (laughs) I know. (laughs) (laughs) And then, of course,
1: in 1997, after the collapse of this first deal, Packer and Murdoch came together yet again with Channel 9 getting the free-to-air rights for Super League. What
0: was Super League thinking when they're looking at Packer's coverage of the ARL for so many years, Burke's backyard, the 43-minute Sunday game? Well, they think this guy's going to be great for our product.
1: <laughs> and, and I mean, this is for another episode, but that was to get even worse, you know, with, with Super League in 1997. But regardless, a deal was done, and Channel 9 was the free-to-air carrier of Super League. And in Arthurson's book, he said, On Friday, 17th of January, 1997, Channel 9 made the formal announcement of a deal with Super League. I'd heard the rumours on this, but defended our allies. Not when the chips are down. They won't do it, I'd said to people.
0: (laughs) So obviously his acolytes were saying, you sure? Um, Seems like the sort of guy who would do it.
1: I just can't understand how someone with so much experience and someone who took the game so far could keep getting surprised by this. Somebody
0: who's dealt with Peter Moore for 40 <laughs> years. <laughs> it's not even Machiavellian because it's, he's overtly doing it and always has. <laughs> so yes, yeah, like- exactly.
1: But before that 1997 deal, in early 1996, firmly at the time when Packer was considered uh, a traitor by the ARL, uh he surprised ARL officials by making a visit to Phillips Street to pick up his season tickets
0: <laughs> the best part about that he could have sent any number of assistants
1: <laughs> no, I-, <laughs> I love this image so much and like to be fair he did you know spend an hour or so talking with Arco about various things to do with the game but the fact that the ARL are uh, you know seething at the betrayal and what he could do how could he do this to us? He just casually walks in to pick up his season <laughs> tickets as if nothing had happened. <laughs> Actually, o- over the course of this episode, I've come even more around to the idea that he is way, way, way like ahead of Jeff Cousins on the villain scale in this saga.
0: <laughs> well, he's number one on the Audacity scale for that <laughs> one. That's
1: good. But, yeah, Kerry Packer, one of the all-time pricks. <laughs>
0: Still, I mean, after all we've talked about in this series about what he's done, I still have a fondness for him anyway. I kind of get it, you know.
1: Oh, at at least he's a sporting bloke. That's right, you know, (laughs) of the punt. Uh, But that is the end of this chapter and that gets us almost to the point of the court case, which is going to be a big chapter to get through. I dare say that'll be a multi-parter. Before we get to that, though, we've got a diversion that was one of my favourite things to research, Some people may wonder about why it is so crucial to the war, but I think you can't tell the story in full without this story. So that will be on our next episode. But welcome back, everyone. Thank you for everyone who has been in touch with us during the off-season, politely asking when we were going to return. Uh, Thank you all for your patience. We're pumped to be back in the salon recording these again.
0: And thank you for spreading the word you know with the podcast and the and the YouTube variations as well. We're you know increasing our community every week. so yeah you know, keep letting people know in your family and friends that you think will like the series.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so thanks everyone. Thank you, Andrew, uh, and we will speak to you next week.
0: Thank you, mate.